a long time ago, in a faraway place, there was a land where the people were happy. Where the people were well cared for. Where there was peace. Where everyone felt joy. And they had a great king. A king who was honest. A king who was kind. A king whose heart was for the people of his land. And so began most all of the Disney movies I watched as a kid. There was always a king in some land far away who was awesome. There was always a land where people prospered and were blessed and had peace. And the cartoon scene would come over these beautiful rolling hills with cattle and sheep grazing and it would drop into the valley where the people were smiling faces moving in their little idyllic cartoon village. And there it would swoop up to the castle that looked remarkably like the one in Disneyland. And there would be the king and the queen standing out on that balcony that every Disney movie has that overlooks the, this, this inner courtyard of the castle where people have gathered with smiling faces, confetti miraculously falling out of the sky from some cloud somewhere, and everyone was happy. The gospel of the kingdom that we have been talking about, the word means the good news of the kingdom the good news of the kingdom was captured by Disney. Disney does a lot of things that bother me. But they know how to set a story of good and evil. And the good news of the kingdom was always based on the character of the king. And if the story was going to go south, there was somebody in leadership who wasn't so good. And usually when the story made a turn, something like that was involved. We've been talking about the gospel of the kingdom for the last two weeks in the macro. And if you haven't caught those, go to our webpage, find the live stream link and catch up because... The character of the king is being displayed throughout the scriptures. We started a couple of weeks ago with a fairly simple question. Jesus went forth after the death of John the Baptist into Judea and Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we asked one question. What's the gospel of the kingdom? And you can go online and you can find people argue about it and you can find people talking to you about how you qualify and all sorts of things. But if you go through Scripture and start asking, what is the Scripture saying about the gospel of the kingdom? 
I keep seeing the scripture do the same thing. It opens a page and shows us the character of the king. And it opens a page and it shows us the character of the king. And you read the Psalms and there it is again, the character of the king. It keeps rolling the same subject out. Because the good news that Disney captured was that the peace and joy and blessing of the kingdom was based on the character of the king. And the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached is is regularly demonstrated in his sermon illustrations. You do realize the disciples forgot everything Jesus said almost except the sermon illustrations. This is the sadness of preachers. We tell you a story about some guy somewhere that we've just read in a book and you remember that. You can't remember anything else we said. Hopefully the sermon illustration has enough in it to carry you through the week. I don't mind too much because the parables of Jesus are the things that keep popping up in the scriptures. But if you read the parables of Jesus, you find again and again and again him saying the same thing. And the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, and the kingdom of God is like, and the kingdom of heaven is like. And over and over again is this exposure of the character of the king in these stories. For the next three weeks, uh, we're going to kind of talk through a couple of those parables. Obviously, we can't do all of the parables in three weeks. But in the next three weeks, we're going to just open the can a little on a couple of these parables and kind of share with you where we're going. But I want to remind you of some of the revelations of the character of the king that the Bible shares and most everyone agrees about in terms of what the Bible is saying. Straight up, the Bible says, God is love. God doesn't do love. God doesn't have love. God is love. It's a big statement. Three words, but you could spend a long time thinking about that one concept. God is, embodies love. Number two, God is trying to rescue you. Throughout the Bible, that's the story. From beginning to end, God is trying to rescue the people who have gone off the path. He's trying to rescue you. Sometimes we see God use strange means from our perspective to start these rescues. But he's trying to rescue you. Number three, God is creator and redeemer. Jesus is creator and redeemer. Jesus is God. Jesus is trying to rescue. Jesus is love. Unless we forget that third member of the triune God. That means the Holy Spirit is love. The Holy Spirit is trying to rescue you. And the Holy Spirit is creator and redeemer. Unless that seems a little creepy to you. Remember the Spirit of God was there at creation hovering over the presence of the waters. Holy Spirit is not a new idea and a New Testament idea. The Holy Spirit is a, an idea that flows through all of Scripture. The Godhead, the three of them are love. They are trying to rescue. They are our creator and our redeemer. Different roles, one heartbeat. With me so far. God became man in the person, the character, in the story, the individual, the body the physiology of Jesus Christ. As we approach Easter, I I was reminded just thinking about it because I start trying to think about the things that are coming up a couple of weeks before these things actually happen. It helps me not be so scared the week of. 
that it starts in a cave and it ends in a cave. The story of Jesus as a human being starts in a cave and ends in a cave. That's not what I'm preaching on this week, this, this, this Easter, unless something really changes between now and then. But I ju- it's just interesting to me. All of the sort of cycles that flow through Scripture. Jesus born in a cave in Bethlehem, raised from a cave in Jerusalem. Jesus came to the earth as a representation of the Father and the Spirit, the Creator, the Redeemer, the the, the manifestation of love in a human body to rescue us. And he didn't supplant God in the role. The Father who created all things, the God, Father who is this enormous power, the Father who we think of as everything that God should be and is and omnipresence and omniscience and all of those things, embodied in Christ. But Jesus didn't supplant the Father. They were a team In this, you can't make one the judge and one the Savior. They had you in mind when they developed the plan. They had you in mind when they initiated the plan. The plan has always been to rescue mankind and reveal the character of God, therefore answering the question, can God be trusted? And so Jesus told stories. He spoke this parable to them. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, doing what? rejoicing. He he carries it home. He lays it on his shoulders. There's some beautiful paintings of this. Jesus with a, a lamb on his shoulders, with with a sheep on his shoulders, depending on whether the person likes little bit little lambs or bigger sheep. And there he's carrying it home. Smile on his face, treading through the grass to return to the ninety and nine, the missing one. When he comes home He's rejoicing all his way. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors. Because you know your neighbors are not always your friends. He calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep, which was lost. Come to my house. Come over. We're going to have fun. We're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate because I found my sheep. I went out, wandered around. I left the 99 here. You guys kind of hopefully watched them for me and fed them and took care of them while I was out. But I I found the one that was missing. Come over to my house. I'm having a party. This is how the king feels about your return. Your Return. You might be the sheep who's out there lost somewhere, and you're kind of hiding from him right now. You're you're like, I don't want him to find me. I'm enjoying myself out here. Wolves or not, I'm happy here. You may be the sheep who's on his shoulders headed back. You may be the sheep returned to the flock. I don't know where you are in your experience today. But this is how he feels about your return. Even if you're hiding even if you're rejecting him, even if you're declaring that he's not there, he is hopeful and joyful that he might be able to get you back. 
That's how he feels about you. Those of you who have been in the fold for 50 years, 25, 30 years, he still feels the same way about you. He still feels this way about you. This is the heart of the king. This is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand. This is how God feels about you. He felt so upset when you were gone that he went out to get you. He became a human being, came to the planet to to put this plan in place so that he might be able to get you back. He chased you down, found you in your hiding spot, found you when you were lost, found you when you were scared, put yourself in there in any way he found you. He lifted you on his shoulders and he sang songs of joy and rejoicing all the way back home. All the way. Got home. Got on the phone. I picked it up like it was on the wall. This is how old I am. Some of you have no idea what this means when you have a phone. Don't worry. It's in a movie somewhere. You can find it. Try pre-1960. He calls all of his buddies, his friends, and they come over. His neighbors come over. He says, the coolest thing happened today? I finally found my missing sheep. I looked everywhere. I looked all over. I finally found it. I picked it up, brought it home, and I just had to celebrate. The text goes on to say that heaven has a party when one soul returns. Do you know how many people are returning to God every day? That means every day there's a party. When you tell a friend about Jesus and they come back, you start a party in heaven. Could you start some more parties? Really, I mean, seriously, start more parties. Tell somebody about Jesus. Introduce somebody to Jesus today. Start some parties. Think about it when you're talking to him about Jesus. I'm about to start a party in heaven. You don't have a lot of control over what happens in heaven, but you get a chance at this to start a party in heaven. I wonder what a heavenly party looks like. I'm looking forward to that. Really looking forward to that. Back, I don't know, decades ago, a guy named Tony Campalo wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is a Party. Campalo was arguing for the passage in Deuteronomy where you were to take your tithe and throw a big party with it. Preachers don't often mention this text because we're kind of dependent on that. But it's, it's, a, it's an interesting phrase. He's, his comment is interesting about it. Unless you think you're getting out of tithe right now, I'm about to throw you a big, big curve, which he put in the book. You should spend 10% of your income, income on parties. He said, you should spend 10% of your income on parties. Take your friend to Disneyland. Grab some people in the neighborhood and throw a party. Take some friends who don't know Jesus and invite them to your house for a party. Not a Bible study, a party. Celebrate. You know, God set and, or, or set four parties annually in the, in the calendar of Israel. There are four parties they are required to go to every year. Poor people. Oh, man. They had four Thanksgivings a year. I think our Christianity were short, short two parties. We do one in the, in the winter at Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. We do one in the spring and Easter to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Good things to celebrate. But we're short two parties. 
So we need to make up for those. We need to figure out what other parties we're going to have a couple times a year. Big parties, like Christmas-sized parties, like big parties where you have friends and family over and you, you eat food that you don't normally eat. You have, you have celebrations that are specific to the moment. You know, Fourth of July is kind of evenly separated out there. Pick that one. That would be a good one. Have a big party at Fourth of July. It's hot around you. You can sit out and sweat in the sun in the park. God set the calendar up in Israel to have parties. It's interesting. If you carefully go and read that passage in Deuteronomy about tithing. Don't read it right now. I'm trying to keep your attention. But if you do read it, when you get there this afternoon, he has this whole statement in there about what to do with this tithe and have this party. And he says, in this way, you will learn to fear the Lord. If this is how you're learning to fear the Lord, it's clearly not telling you that you're going to learn to be afraid of the Lord. Now, here's Kampalo's big curveball. He says, take the other 90% of your income and do kingdom work with it. So if you thought you were getting out, you got in big. You got in real big. But man, could you imagine if we said every year I'm going to match my tithe for parties, for fun things, with fun people, and maybe some that are not as fun who haven't met Jesus yet. You know what I mean? If you were intentional, if we were intentional about helping the world see that God is fun, that God Christians are not what they're portrayed on TV to be. Some of them are, I know. Invite them to the party. Teach them to smile. If you understand the character of the king, this is how he feels about you. He's throwing a party in your honor because you return. He's carrying you on his shoulders, rejoicing all the way. That's how he feels about you. In another parable, Jesus answering this time, spoke to them again by parables. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Kingdom of heaven. It's like a king who's about to celebrate his son's marriage. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. They heard that parties at the church were boring. They had met a few church folks who were not fun. They had found some folks who only really had one working finger and it seemed to have a twitchy problem. They didn't want to come. So he sent out his servants 
saying, tell those who are invited, look, I've prepared for dinner. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. When you go to a wedding and you sit in the church and the preacher drones on, you're always thinking, can we just get this over with and get to the reception? I know, I've seen your faces. He's saying, I've, I've made everything ready. If you read, it gets more specific in the animals he's killed in preparation for the barbecue. Things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. They went their ways. One to his farm, another to his business. If you read the next verse, it said some beat and even killed the messengers he sent out. You see, Jesus is talking about a king who is trying to throw a party. He's invited people in. And for centuries, he's been throwing out the invitation to the party, saying, it'll be great, come, please come, it'll be fun. It'll be the, it'll be the celebration of eternity. Come join us. And some said no, and they found excuses. I have to go pull some weeds. I got to go prepare for my taxes. And some of them just beat on the people who came to tell them the good news that they were invited. So where do we put this king? This peace. Do you know what happens next? They kill the prophets and the messengers. Sends out his shoulders. And he kills them. All right. Now what do we do? Pastor Tim will answer this question next week. This is the part of the king we're all afraid of. But do you notice the heart of the king was to bring everyone to the party? Do you understand that? That the story's about, I would like everybody to come. He's not, he's not resisting anybody. He has found a list of people. He's tried to invite them. He's tried to bring them in. In this particular time, he's, he's, he's comparing, Jesus is comparing Israel's invitation for the last, well, at that point, almost 1,400 years. And he's comparing their rejection of the invitation with the people he's going to be, start, he's going to be inviting and has started inviting now. You know, prostitutes, blatant sinners like tax collectors, People like that. He started inviting them. That's how he goes next. Said to his servants, the wedding is ready. Those who were invited were not worthy. How did they get unworthy? You see, we get this story all messed up because we look at these two groups and we think, this first group are the good guys. And then he goes out and he goes to the, to the alleyways and streets and finds whoever he can find and he invites them and those are the bad guys. No one in this story is a good guy except the king. He's inviting people to come in. Some are rejecting it. Some are accepting it. He says, you know how the card of the king works? The king desires that everyone get to come. 
the king is inviting everybody. Some people don't want to come. It's Jesus' statement in John chapter 3. When speaking, speaking to Nicodemus. And he says, I've come not to judge the world. Not to condemn the world. But some are already condemned because the light has shined on them and they've rejected it. It's heavy. It's the other side of the story. Everyone can come. No one need be excluded. You don't become unworthy because you don't qualify. You become unworthy because you threw away your ticket. You refuse to come. You beat up the messenger. Because he was inviting you to a party. It's crazy. If you look at the gospel of the kingdom and an understanding of the character of the king and you understand that he loves you, he's desiring to rescue you, he was so in love with you, he came to this muddy little planet in the form of a human being so that you could understand him better. If you understand that the good news about the kingdom is the king himself is trying to get you home. We have, set, we have separated this story out and because of these pieces, we've said, look, God is sitting up there with the gavel ready to say no every chance he gets. It's the false picture of God. It's actually blasphemous. Judgment is had on behalf of the saints. God is trying to get everybody who's willing through the door. Please don't misunderstand this. There's only one way to disqualify yourself for the kingdom. And that is to refuse the gift of the invite. It's why the Apostle Paul can declare you are saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It's a gift. This is not Willy Wonka's factory and there's like seven of these things in the whole world and everybody else is just out of luck. Told you I saw a lot of Disney. This is everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody gets a golden ticket. And the only way that ticket becomes invalid is if you throw it away. Throw it away. Personally, intentionally, rid yourself of it. Your sins do not make you invalid for heaven. Unworthy of heaven. If that were true, the place would be empty except for the Trinity and the unfallen. But when we read the book of Revelation, there's this amazing picture. John hears the number of the saints, 144,000 from all nations, kindred tongues, and he turns and he looks, and there's an uncountable multitude. 
an uncountable multitude that spread across every nation he could imagine. God is not trying to keep you out of heaven. Please write this on the inside of your eyelids so every time you close your eyes you see it. God is not trying to keep you out of heaven. He's trying to get you in. That means that the things he's written in scripture that you don't like, because the things you do like aren't worth talking about right at this moment, the things he's written in scripture that you don't like, he's trying to get you into heaven so they are on your side too. He's trying to help you with those things too. He's trying to help you understand with those things too. Servants were sent out because those who were invited were not worthy. Not because they were on the sinner scale even. You do realize that God saves people who kill his people, right? The Apostle Paul, guy wrote most of the New Testament. Before he was converted, he was hunting down the people of God. The brand new, barely birthed church that was needing all the traction it could get. Paul was chasing them down and killing them off. You could be Paul's neighbor. Nobody wants to be Hitler's neighbor. But nobody really complains about Paul because we saw the Paul that was converted. I don't know. Hitler had very few minutes to convert. From what I understand in that bunker, there wasn't a lot of time. But I don't decide. He was in possession of a golden ticket. And the only way he doesn't get in the kingdom is if he wads it up and throws it away. Even him. You don't get to disqualify anybody. None of us get to disqualify anybody. Everyone disqualifies themselves. They become unworthy by rejecting the invite. If the character of God isn't changing here, the invitation has been sent out from the king. That's the point of the story. And Jesus then is telling that how you respond to it is how you decide whether or not you're going to be at this wedding reception. This amazing feast he has planned. He says to them, go into the highways and as many as you invite, you find, invite them. Bring them in. Bring them in. Bring them in. As many as you find, invite them. Do you know what an invitation is? It's an opportunity to say yes or no. Invite everybody, everybody you find. Invite them. Invite everybody. Church, 
invite everybody. If you could get your elevator speech for an invitation to, God, to, to, to follow Jesus down, literally, your elevator speech, you know what that is? That's the speech you can give in the, in the length it takes to ride an elevator from a floor to a floor because you you're not sure you're getting two floors. So it's, you know, it's a 10 or 15, 20 second speech. Do you know Jesus? He's inviting you to go to heaven. He's trying to get you in, not keep you out. That's an elevator speech. You can take that one. I didn't, I didn't stamp it for your approval, but you can take it if you want. He's trying to get you into heaven. He's inviting you. Do you know Jesus? He'd like to take you to heaven. He will be so happy when you show up. Well, you don't know me. Ding, door opens. I don't, but he does. This is my floor. Hope I see you there. It's out. It's over. You do not need to know how to describe the 144,000. You don't need to be able to explain 2,300 days from Daniel. You don't need any of that. Just an elevator speech. If they need more than that, take it to Pastor Marlene. She'll explain all of it. But that's the invitation here today, too. That's the invitation that's given every day. That's the restoration of relationship that we were talking about that he offered to Adam and Eve the day after they fell. The first sin that would create all the trouble that we're finding ourselves in right now. God showed up. Jesus showed up the next day. And he offered them the same relationship. Personal, direct, connected. That they had the day before. And that's what he's offering to you and I. We've been separated by a lot since then. And we're a little harder to communicate with, but the invitation is the same. Kingdom of God. It's like a wedding reception. Not the boring ones. The fun ones. You've been to both. You leave one earlier than you leave the other. The fun ones where people are laughing and enjoying themselves and sharing good food and sharing great fun. The fun ones. Kingdom of God. It's like a wedding reception. A fun one. And you know there's going to be one. There's, this, is a, this is a parable, but the bi- biblical story says when you get to heaven, there's going to be a celebration for the arrival of the saints. And I don't know what that's going to be. But God's had a lot of time to plan, and he has a lot of authority and power, so probably going to be pretty fun. You know, when you get your, your ticket, you get a packet. It's not on your phone. It's a packet. Golden tickets. You can just keep passing them out to everybody. It's that elevator speech. Hey, you can go to heaven if you'd like. God's trying to get you there. See ya. Hope to see you there. Figure your elevator speech out. It doesn't have to be long. Long is usually not a good idea. If you're too much of a chicken, just wait till you're in the elevator with only one other person. Doesn't happen a lot, but hey, God will give you the opportunity if you give him one. Find yourself riding with strangers in elevators all the time. 
all by yourself. Because God loves those people too much to let them go without a ticket. They can throw it away if they'd like. But the invitation's still there. To a, a celebration that's going to be amazing. And then you get to start a celebration in heaven. You won't get to see this one. Maybe you could see it on videotape. But when you invite a friend and they accept Jesus, according to Jesus, there's a celebration in heaven. I want to share to you what is to me one of the most sad and hopeful passages in all of Scripture. It's another parable. It's the end of the parable that I shared with you at the beginning. This parable has a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And at the end of this parable, Jesus tells you about the other son. Not the lost son, not the son who's wandered off and wasted his money and done all kinds of terrible things that his big brother's been imagining the whole time. Verse 25 says, Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. So he called out to one of the servants. And he said, What's the meaning of this? The servant said to him, Your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. It's funny, we use that in English and half the people don't know where it comes from. But he was angry, the older brother, and would not go in the house. Is he invited? Sure. He's invited. There was, therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. The last image I'd like to leave you is of a father who desperately loves his two sons. I mean desperately loves his two sons. One of them has run off over Fool's Hill and made a fool of himself, but come back. The other one's out working in the field, trying to do the right thing. But when he finds out how happy the father is about his dumb little brother coming home, he refuses to join the party. But his father comes out. The father doesn't just dismiss him 
because he stayed outside. He comes out. And this is the picture Jesus leaves with us. There on the driveway is the father pleading with his son to come in and join the party. I didn't make this up that God is doing everything he can to get you in. This is a picture of our father. This is a picture of the character of our king. This is a picture of the nature of his kingdom. That one of his fathers, one of his father's sons who's done crazy things has come back and the father didn't take a moment's extra thought on it. He put the ring on his finger, wrapped a robe around him that would cover the stench, brought him home and threw a party. When the other son came and didn't want to come inside because he couldn't believe that his father would forgive all that has been done. Father opens the door, crosses the porch, goes down the steps, walks out in the driveway, finds his son, arms crossed, leaning against the barn, don't want to talk to you, how dare you, I can't believe you. And he pleads with him to come home. Jesus leaves our father on the driveway, pleading. And that's how the story ends. I hope he went inside. Don't miss this. Don't miss this because of your pride. Don't miss this because of your favorite sin. Don't miss this because of your stubbornness. Don't miss this because you're smarter than God. Don't miss this. He's pleading for you to come home. He's also pleading for those of us who've taken the invitation and said yes to invite somebody else because you are the plan for the salvation in the world. The local church is the hope of the world. God's amazing. He desires nothing more than for all his kids to get home. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard for me to imagine you pleading. But I've heard the pleadings of Moses, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. I've heard the pleadings in the Psalms and the pleadings of Jesus. I've heard Paul and John and Peter plead for me to come home.
Thank you for not leaving me out on the driveway. Thank you for not leaving me out on the road. Thank you that you ran out to save the one who had done the foolish thing. Thank you that you ran out to save the one who's about to turn down your invitation. Lord, put us on the road, on the driveway, wherever we might speak to someone we know. And help us to see ourselves standing before you while you are pleading with us to come home. That the party will be better than anything we've ever experienced. That no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no one has even imagined how cool this will be. Help us not to miss this.